Well, we are in a series on the Gospel of Luke, and this week we come uh, to John the Baptist, who kind of bursts right back into the storyline, having been somewhat absent from it for several chapters, and he comes back with a, a what seems to be really a timely question for Jesus. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, I initially thought I could cover uh, this whole passage in one week, but that was a little too ambitious for me. So while I'm going to read all 17 verses of the passage just so you can get the natural flow of it, I'll be covering just the first part of it uh, this week and then this, the back half of it uh, next week. So we're in chapter 7, and we're going to pick it up with verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go again in prayer to him. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for words just like this one where we see John the Baptist, in a certain sense, really struggling to believe and come to grips with who Jesus is as the Son of God and Messiah. Lord, I pray for us here, too, because often passages like this, if not all of Scripture, can be very difficult to believe, to take in, and to walk by. So I pray that your Spirit would be amongst us that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear and feet that follow you. We pray all of this through Jesus' name and the power of that same spirit. Amen. Well, Luke, from the very beginning of his gospel, has been forthright in telling us that he's written an orderly account 
of the life of Jesus so that Christians, uh, like his friend Theophilus, who he named early in the introduction of his gospel, may have certainty about what they have been taught about Jesus. So Luke's gospel then, it actually assumes a Christian audience that is already familiar with at least some of the details of Jesus' life and already believes in him. Even so, since chapter 4, Luke has presented us with scene after scene, really beginning with Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, with the question of Jesus' identity. Is he a miracle worker? Is he another great prophet similar to Elijah or Elisha? Or is he something more, if not the Son of God? And from the start, Luke has told us in no uncertain terms that Jesus, well, he is the Son of God, the Messiah, the promised Redeemer of the world. And as we go along, we see people come into contact with Jesus. So they they hear his teaching, uh, they see him perform miracles, and they're faced with that question. Who do we say that Jesus is? Which, by the way, is a life and death question. In Nazareth, his hometown, the people, as, as Jesus actually warns against in our passage, were offended by him and his claim to be the Messiah and in turn moved to kill him. But as we've seen with, say, Matthew the tax collector or the leper of, of chapter 5 or the paralytic men and his friends who lowered him through the roof of the synagogue in chapter 5 also or the Roman centurion of, of chapter 7, there are some who do believe who hear and they see and they have found life in Jesus. John the Baptist, though, is an interesting wrinkle at this point in the story. So if you will remember from uh, chapters 1 and 3, it is John the Baptist, even from the womb, who, who recognizes Jesus as Israel's Messiah. John's the one who was set apart by God, much like Elijah was, to be a voice crying out in the wilderness. And he cries out, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So his ministry was preparatory to Jesus. That is, he was entirely about preparing Israel to receive her king, Jesus. And it's not as though John was lacking in, in self-confidence or, or courage either. He, so he did not hesitate, for example, to call out King Herod for his sexual deviancy or to publicly criticize the scribes and Pharisees. And rightly so. I mean, that's just often part and parcel of what a prophet was called to do. Not an easy life by any means. And of course, he was the one who not only baptized Jesus, but in the same moment of that baptism, he, along with many others, witnessed the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus and in turn heard God the Father proclaim from heaven, You, Jesus, are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. So of all the people thus far in Luke's gospel who should not really have questions about Jesus, you would think John is the obvious choice to be total faith. And yet here we find him wondering, alongside many others who have heard and seen Jesus, if Jesus really is the one to come, if he really is the Son of God and the Redeemer of the world, or should they look for someone else? Now, we don't know exactly why John, at this point, questions whether Jesus is the promised one or not. But I think it's probably tied to the fact 
that in his sermon in Luke 4, and this would not have been the only time Jesus said these sorts of things, that he was sent to proclaim liberty to the captives. And at this point, John was in prison for calling out Herod and probably knew if he was not soon let go, he would die there. And of course, this is exactly what happens. And perhaps John was thinking, you claimed you would set the captives free. And here I sit in prison for preaching truth to power as God called me to do. So, admittedly, it's dangerous to psychologize John or anyone else for that matter and in turn apply motives to him when Luke obviously doesn't tell us specifically why John is calling Jesus' identity into question. Though, I think Jesus' answer to John does give us a clue. And we'll come back to that in a little bit. Even so, John's questioning of Jesus should make us sympathetic, I think, to the crowds and just how amazing and simultaneously confusing Jesus was to those who witnessed him, even to people like John the Baptist. And as we will discuss next week, John, as Jesus saw him, was the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. And considering men like Moses and Elijah, that is a remarkable statement. John marked the end of the Old Covenant. So he was the end of that era, even as Jesus was bringing into existence the New Covenant and new creation with him. And at every great moment in God's working out of history, there is often confusion and anxiety over what is to come next, or even what was just happening in the moment. So that's how new crea creation moments often are. So you could see that, for example, with the flood. Talk about a confusing moment. Or the exodus out of Egypt, which were both world-changing moments. To put that a little bit closer to home, uh, for those of you who are old enough to remember, just think back to the fear and anxiety that accompanied the year 2000. Everyone remember Y2K? What's going to happen when it strikes midnight? And I remember my wife and I were at a party at someone's house, and the owner of the home thought it was funny to hit uh, the fuse box. Although, and all the lights went out at midnight, and people screamed. What's going on? Right? Or just think about the, the, the days and months after 9-11. What's happening in our world? Has our world changed? Is it ever going to go back to normal? And the answer was, of course, no. No, it would not. So while we read these passages and think, how can these people not get this? We, we have, personally, the benefit of hindsight and the clarity of Luke's gospel to guide us through these things. They, however, were dealing with these things in real time, and it's hard. So while we don't know exactly why John was questioning Jesus, though I do think we have a clue, what is clear is that John's generation, that is the generation that Jesus ministered to, was rightly expecting the Messiah to show up, and in turn, they had certain expectations shaped by the Bible for what that would look like. So, for example, consider Psalm 87, a psalm that they would have known very well. It says this, On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion. 
more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion, it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples. This one was born there. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. Well, to us, that might seem a little opaque, or that's, oh, that's, that's a pretty poem about the city of God. But it is deep, and it is incredible. I mean, Psalm 87 is one of those passages, and there's actually many like this, that not only gives us some added details about how the biblical authors understood Eden. Eden was modeled on the heavenly throne room, and itself was a mountain sanctuary with rivers flowing out of it that brought life to the nations. And Eden itself, in turn, became the model for the tabernacle and the temple and how Jerusalem, like in Psalm 87, was understood. And the idea is on earth as it is in heaven. So Psalm 87 is a song about Zion, right? The city of God, the city that God himself founded. And as an aside, this psalm is the basis for the hymn, Glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion, city of our God. That's why we sing about that. So on one level, Psalm 87 is about Jerusalem, you know, the city of God where the temple was built. But even that city, which was a mixture of sin and holiness, and sometimes the sin was, was pretty extreme, it was clearly impermanent and was a shadow of the city to come. Zion, that is the new Jerusalem of Revelation 21 and 22 that descends from heaven to earth. And again, remember, on earth as it is in heaven, complete with the tree of life and the river of life flowing out of it. Now listen, we could, if you can't tell, we could spend a lot of time just on Psalm 87, but what I want to point out is that the sons of Korah, that is the Levitical priests and worship leaders who wrote that song, they understood that future Zion to include Israel's enemies. Israel's enemies, Rahab and Babylon, the Philistines, Tyre and Cush. And those enemies aren't included merely as, say, like lower-class citizens or beggars within the city, as in when people say, I'd just be happy to be there. No, they are counted as born in that city. So considering that the Babylonians leveled the first temple, it's another way of saying God really does love his enemies and counts many of them as his children. And in the psalm, God counts his people. He takes a census of them. That's that language. And counts even the wicked Babylonians and the Philistines, you know, famously of Goliath, the Philistines, those wicked people, as this one was born and the singers and dancers rejoice because the rivers of God flowing from the city, like we see in Genesis 2, have brought life to the nations. Those who were not my people, like Jonah's Nineveh, have become my people. So it's not as though a good Israelite would have not known this about the trajectory of the Old Testament. And they had some idea that God was bringing the world even Israel's enemies into his kingdom. You know, after all, that's the promise God made to Abraham. And even the Pharisees 
went looking for Gentile converts to Judaism. And the question is, okay, how is God going to do this? How will this happen? How will God bring the nations unto himself? That's the open question for this generation. So, if you go back to Jesus' first sermon at Nazareth, back in chapter 4, here's what he says. It's very short. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And what's interesting is that while Jesus is drawing on Isaiah 61, 1, in the first phrase of verse 2, to proclaim the Lord's favor, that's that, that first part of verse 2, he leaves off the second phrase of verse 2. And the day of vengeance of our God. So he leads with compassion, but he leaves off the vengeance part. And then in the same sermon, he also draws from Isaiah 29, verses 18 and 19. It says this, In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. But he didn't keep going. He does not include the next two verses. Verses 20 and 21 where it says, For the ruthless shall come to nothing, and the scoffer cease, and all who watch to do evil shall be cut off, who by a word make a man out to be an offender, and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate with an empty plea, turn, turn aside him who is in the right. Okay, so in other words... Jesus mentions God's promise, compassion, and mercy. That extends to the nations and even to Israel's enemies. They got that. But he did not mention God's promise, justice, and vengeance, even as Isaiah makes clear that God will do both, just like Exodus 34, 6, and 7, which in many ways is the central theological theme of the Bible puts both things, God's mercy and compassion, next to his justice, side by side. Okay, so the question then is, Jesus, like a bad preacher, cherry-picking Bible verses to suit his message? He's gone looking for verses he likes, ignoring others, or worse, is he just making the Bible to say what he wants it to say? Well, we've already seen that Jesus preached about the coming judgment for those who reject him. So he certainly did that at Nazareth, Nazareth after his first sermon, and that, that's his point in the Sermon on the Plains about those who refuse to build their, their lives on him, the rock. And if you know anything about the Gospels, let alone the Bible, and this is always a fun trivia question for people, who in the Bible speaks the most about hell? It's the, it's the Sunday school answer, right? It's Jesus. The one who speaks the most about hell is Jesus. So it's fair to say that Jesus does not shy away from the topic of God's judgment and vengeance. So then, you have to ask, why does he highlight only one side of Isaiah's prophecy at the beginning of his ministry and not the other two? Well, Jesus, like we see God doing throughout the Old Testament, always leads with mercy and compassion first. And only later brings justice and vengeance. So, for example, 
It is not as though Noah's generation was without a witness from God against their violence and evil. And to give a warning is merciful, even as God was long-suffering with them. And Ezekiel makes clear God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. And like with the book of Jonah, God loves to see the wicked, even the very violent wicked, turn to him and find life. And when we say the wicked, now that term might just as well be describing pagans, as we kind of tend to assume, as it does those who were called by God's name as well. So even with Pharaoh and the Egyptians in the book of Exodus, God is incredibly patient with the wicked, and he does not leave them without a witness so that they might turn to him and find life. So if you think about it that way, Pharaoh did not have to suffer and die. Like the Pharaoh before him, he could have sided with Joseph's God and found life in him, but he refused. And it's safe to assume that the nobility and the priestly classes refused too, but not all of Egypt refused. The multitude that came out of Egypt and crossed the Red Sea, eventually finding life in the Promised Land, was actually a mixed bag of Israelites and Egyptians. It's why circumcision, for example was not practiced during the entire wilderness period until Israel took the new land. Again, Jew and Gentile were coming together, and they formed one new people. Now, this is at the very center of Psalm 87 that we began this whole section of my sermon reading. God will count even the Babylonians, even Egyptians, as his people, as if they were born in Zion. And it's why Paul says it's not blood or lineage or ethnicity that counts, but faith looking in trust to God for life that counts. And so Jesus is bringing God's mercy to Israel first, and only later will that mercy go out to the world through Israel, and in turn, he will also bring judgment to Israel first, and then later bring it upon the nations. But still, for a people enduring under foreign military powers that had brutal tax codes, it would have made sense for them to expect God to bring justice to the wicked, especially as they had endured under multiple empires for hundreds of years. So they're taking, in a certain sense, Isaiah 61 seriously. We see the mercy. Where's the vengeance? Where's the vengeance? So I can only imagine some of Jesus' critics thought he was cherry-picking texts. If he's the Messiah, why not do both mercy for Israel and justice for her enemies? Ultimately, this is why Barabbas, that violent revolutionary, seemed to Israel's leadership like a more appealing son of the father, Bar Abbas. We want that one, because at least he seems like he's bringing justice to our enemies. Okay, so John from prison had heard from his disciples what Jesus was doing, including the very recent resurrection of the widow of Nain's son. And John sends two of his own disciples. And the law always requires two witnesses, that's why John sends two, to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come? Or we, should we look for another? And at the very moment when they showed up, they found Jesus healing people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and for many who were blind, he bestowed sight. 
Now, as an aside, I don't think Luke means that Jesus simply healed blindness, or he would have just said it kind of baldly like that. And clearly, though that, that sort of thing was being done, I think what Luke has in mind is he, he gave the ability to rightly understand, to rightly see Jesus. And in fact, you see crowds starting to believe that he is the Messiah. So John's two disciples witness all these things, and Jesus tells them to go and tell John what they had seen and heard. And then he quotes Isaiah 61 and 21, 29 like he did in his first sermon on Nazareth. So like we've seen in the weeks past here, seeing and hearing are connected with knowing God and in turn being able to make right judgments. So those who hear the word of God and walk in that same word actually know God. And as a matter of consequence, they are able to rightly see the world and are able to make right judgments in light of that word. So Jesus is challenging these two witnesses to consider what they are witnessing, what they are seeing in light of what they have heard Jesus preach and teach and in turn is challenging them to make a right evaluation because they're legal witnesses. Is Jesus the promised one or not? Is what he said, is his word about himself actually happening? Are they able to make a right evaluation? And then he has the line, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And I think that's the clue to understanding what's going on in John the Baptist's heart. So often a person is offended, not merely because someone said something insulting, though clearly that happens in our times a lot, but because of unmet expectations. So personally, what I'm usually most offended by is impolite behavior in public spaces, like rudeness towards servers in restaurants, or arrogant, impatient people at Walmart, or people who just throw their trash on the ground, or, or, or poor table manners, or even uh, bad tone of voice, people who don't say please or thank you. It's why even when I, I really want to see a new movie, I will typically wait weeks to go see that movie because I don't want to endure with rude people who can't sit in a movie theater without looking at their phone, eating like hogs, talking to their friends. You see the point. You see the point. So I'm offended because people have not met with my expectations. But notice that Jesus says, and blessed are those who are not offended by me. The last time Jesus used a similar formula was in the Sermon on the Plains. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But I say to you who hear, Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. 
Okay, I, I could be wrong, but I think this is the sort of blessing that God's people uh, were not looking for when it came to the Messiah. And while on the surface, everybody tends to think love your enemy is just great. It's just nice until you actually have to do it. And if you're a people under military occupation with, with tax codes that make ours look like romper room, this is absolutely offensive, absolutely offensive. Or to bring it closer to home, to many Christians in our circles, to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you during what has become a so-called pride month is incredibly offensive. Blessed are the ones who are not offended by Jesus and how he brings his kingdom into the world. So think of it this way. Now, on the one hand, God so loved the world, he so loved the humanity in rebellion against them, to put it mildly, that he gave his son to atone for them and bring them into communion with him while they were still enemies. And if you think what's on view in San Francisco or Portland or wherever is worse than what was on offer in Rome or Babylon or Nineveh, you are kidding yourself. And so for those who receive the gift of life, we have the privilege of walking in Jesus' ways. We have been given this even when we were his enemies. And we also have the privilege of loving our enemies too. But on the other hand, our expectations for justice or for vengeance, well, they might not be met in this life. Or it might not be met how we want those things to be met. So like the martyrs of Revelation 6 who endured through persecution, just like Jesus describes in the Sermon on the Plains, they cry out, this is in heaven. They cry out, how long until you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? So like the blood of Abel crying out from the land. So the saints of God in heaven cry out asking how long until God will avenge. Now think about that. How do you think Stephen understood Saul in light of Jesus? Do you think Stephen rejoiced in God so loving, a zealous, murderous Saul that he converted him into a Paul and became arguably the greatest apostle? There is no doubt in my mind that the kingdom of God has been exponentially growing since these very Moments. In fact, one of the greatest arguments for the validity of Christianity is how it has covered the world multiple times. Even as Jesus said it would do that. So there's that. But the temptation for us, just as it was, I think, for John the Baptist, is to be offended by Jesus, despite having been given the kingdom and life in him. And the temptation comes because he does not meet our expectations, especially when we start to believe the lie. I should not have to endure this indignity, or this lack, or this uncomfortable thing, or these people, or whatever it is we, we, we think we deserve. And of course, what you have endured, I'm sure can be, it was horrible, and it's not right, and it's not fair. And John the Baptist, think of it this way, the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, think on this, was beheaded by a sexual deviant on the whim of his stepdaughter who he was lusting after. Where is the justice in that? 
And yet Jesus himself is clear. He will bring justice. Vengeance is his, and he will do it, but he's going to do it in his timing. So if we have ears to hear and eyes to see, if we know that that God has said about us, this one was born in Zion. Though we may endure real suffering, even as we see the wicked enjoy whatever it is they want to enjoy, still we have confidence and faith that this present moment is not the end. And like John the Baptist, we can honestly and hopefully say, I know my Redeemer lives, and this is not the end. Let's go again to our God in prayer. Heavenly Father, I I will admit that Jesus is so often offensive to my expectations and to my sensibilities. And I think that's probably a good thing for my heart and for my mind. It forces us to grow past ourselves. It forces us to grow past our self-centeredness and thinking that we are always in the right or that our ways are the best ways no lord your ways are the best ways may we grow in that confidence may we grow in that conviction as we learn to listen to your word to see by it and to live by it that in we do pray the spirit would be among us to help us do that very thing we pray all of this in jesus name amen